Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. It's great to see old familiar faces and young faces as well. It's just, it's just really good to be here. Yeah, it's, I... Uh, Appreciate the format that we have here too. It's uh, it's really conducive to put us, putting us in the right frame of mind, um, and uh, it's a little different than what we're sometimes used to. But I, I like a bit of change once in a while, and I, quite frankly, I think it's a change. It's an improvement. Um, and when you th- one of the things I'm sure many of you, when you were praying privately to yourself, were praying for the Jansons as as I was. Just wanted to quickly update you a little bit because uh, Doug Kosh had called him last week, and I don't know whether you know more. You might, you may be aware of this already, but uh, one of the things that uh, he was telling us is that before she had taken the uh, Drano to take her life, um, she had eaten a whole bunch of spinach because she was vegetarian, and it had what's that? Oh, beans. Stand corrected. Anyway, it, it, it had coated her stomach. And uh, so because of that, uh, it prevented some of the deterioration of the lower part of her stomach. So they're hoping they can save some of the, uh, some of the digestive organs. Um, and, and that is yet to be seen. We, well, I haven't heard since then. But it looks like at least that that is a major blessing that they don't have to remove all of the esophagus and the stomach and, and maybe other things as well. So... Um, something to be thankful for. It's hard to, hard to imagine what kind of mental anguish um, that they're going through. I, I try to imagine that as I pray for them, and I, you know, I try to do that daily. Uh, but really, um, it takes God to give us the kind of strength and fortitude and the peace of mind to be able to navigate through these difficult times and all of you, all of us have at one time or other uh, had things that have um, been distressful for us, whether it be health issues, whether it be loss of life whether it be internal problems within your family, uh, marriage issues um, whatever it may be, we all have to deal with these things in our lives and peace is is an elusive characteristic that Christians can claim even though it's sometimes difficult for us to do so. I want to talk a little bit about peace today. Um, Not just in relationship to to Pentecost as it approaches and one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit, but also because I'm doing a sequence of uh, sermons in Kitchener um, in regards to the deception within the church and one aspect of that is dealt with in Ephesians 6, which we will, we will delve into. Um, I want you to turn with me, please, to Matthew 24, because Christ talks about a time that some of you may even think we've entered into. Matthew 24, which we have often referred to as the Olivet Prophecy, 
begins with an interaction between Jesus as he sits there uh, with his disciples on, on the Mount of Olives. And they ask him this question. What shall be the sign of these things to pass? In verse 3, Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And this is taking things, I'm, I'm, I'm taking things a little bit out of context here because he'd been discussing things with his disciples and those who were there to hear what he had to say. And what will be the sign of your coming at the end of, and the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no man deceives you. The very first thing that Jesus says to them is that there will be deception and be on guard regarding that deception. For many will come in my name saying that I am the Christ and will be deceived and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled. Now that sounds like a bit of an oxymoron, doesn't it? For the human mind to try to reflect on the events that Jesus Christ is describing and then to hear Jesus say that, be, be you not troubled, sounds somewhat uh, contradictory. How is it possible that within this context, which we may very well be in at this time, can we be not troubled? Or how can we have the peace of mind in spite of the circumstances that surround us, in spite of the circumstances that surround the Jensen's or I don't know your circumstances, so I don't know what you are dealing with or what you have dealt with or what we're going to have to deal with. But Jesus says, in spite of what is going to transpire, don't be troubled, for all these things must, must come to pass, but the end is not yet. And nations will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famine and pestilence and earthquakes in various places, and all these things are the beginnings of sorrow. And they will deliver you up to tribulation and, they, and kill you, and, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And it goes on and to describe the state of events that we can anticipate, and yet we're not to be troubled. One of the things that Jesus promised his disciples just before he was crucified, he said that he, he would bring them peace, that they could have peace. Turn with me to John 14, please. John 14, and verse 26 and 27. How is it possible to have that kind of peace of mind that, that Jesus is talking about? John 14, verses 26 and 27. talks about the receiving of the Holy Spirit after, he, he, after his death and resurrection. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring your remembrance to all the things that I've said to you. In the context of what we're talking about here is that we're talking about deception and a cascade of events that transpire after the deception. People will come saying that they are the Christ or that they are believers in Christ or that they are Christians and Christ says don't believe them. There will be deception and, and, and Jesus Christ is telling his disciples that when the helper comes, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will give them insight so that so that it will lead them to all truth. The Holy Spirit is the means by which, certainly the scripture, of God, the word of God is his holy word. It's an inspired word of God. But it takes that coupled with the Holy Spirit as it, uh, as it forms a bond with our spirit that we can understand the word of God. And he said that Holy Spirit will lead them unto all truth. And then he says, there is a connection here. 
Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives to you, do I give to you. Not the, the transient truces and armistice that they have that temporarily bring a, a semblance of peace, or better said, a lack of war. But Christ is talking about a peace that transcends what we understand in human terms. Let not your heart be troubled. Again, he says this, these same words. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. And you know, Christ told his disciples what they, could, what they were going to experience. And many of his disciples ended up uh, being martyred. John being possibly the only exception, which um, having been in prison in the last days of his life, I don't imagine that his fate was much better than his martyred dis, uh, uh, colleagues. And yet, in spite of that, Christ said to them, he promised them, I peace I leave with you, my peace. Not as the world gives, but my peace. I want to just um, set the stage here a little bit, because although I'm talking about peace, my focus is on, on deception um, and, and, and how is it, it's integrated with the armor of God in, in that the preparation of the gospel of peace, how that ties in with how we deal, how we prepare ourselves, how we guard ourselves against deception. So I have to backtrack a little bit here. Turn with me to Acts 20. Acts 20. I think Kitchener is getting tired of me quoting this scripture because I've done it numerous times. But I don't apologize. <laughs> I don't apologize. I'll tell you why as we read through this. Acts 20, and verses 28. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock. He's talking to the elders in Ephesus here. He begins by talking to them, and then he talks to the whole Ephesian church. But he says to them, take heed. Listen carefully to, to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this. He was confident of this fact that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them, after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Now, and now, brethren, I commend you to God. And he goes on uh, with his message to the elders and to the brethren in the Ephesian church. For three years, he says, night and day, with tears, he was warning this, this church. Now, the Ephesian church is not unique in the sense that they only needed that warning. That warning applied to the churches across the board at that time. The Corinthian church, the, the, the various churches that were there had issues to deal with, and, and deception was um, a fundamental problem that they had to deal with. Uh, and so not only does this apply to the churches on Paul's circuit, but also applies to the disciples and the believers down through the ages, including ourselves. So this is a, this is a stern warning. And he, if you turn with me now to First uh, Timothy 1, because in this warning, he addresses one of the elders who is going to be 
shepherding the Ephesian flock, Timothy. And uh, we just want to read a couple of verses here to get a sense of what Paul wanted Timothy to understand and to be prepared for. As I urge you, verse 3, so that's 1 Timothy 1, verse 3. As I urge you, when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, that you may charge or that you may command some that they teach no other doctrine. The truth of God, the doctrines that are fundamental to the teachings and the nature of God and the will of God, needed to be addressed in a way that ensured that it was not strayed from. And it says, Nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. Paul was telling Timothy uh, something that I think is very important for us today. I've seen it in the various churches. I've seen it in our own church. Uh, I don't think it's. I don't think we're unique, but there's a tendency to get sidetracked on peripheral issues. I call them rabbit trails. Like here, he talks about genealogies. Uh, he talks about uh, um, dis- various disputes, endless genealogies. But but it's not limited to that. And what was particularly intriguing at that particular time might not be intriguing to us today. Uh, I've gotten off on my own rabbit trails over the years. Um, one of the one, well, I don't necessarily have to itemize uh, the rabbit trails that I've gone down, but they were a mistake. And what it does, it it, digre- it digresses from the word of God, from the purpose of God, from the meaning of, of your calling. And what often happens is that when you go down these nebulous trails, because there are issues in the scripture that are not, that are not absolute. There are things in scriptures that we cannot discern absolutely. We can, we can hypothesize. We can surmise. We can draw our own conclusions. But if we were to take the scriptures and say, this is what it says, absolutely, I, I think we would, be, we would be fooling ourselves. But there are issues that are essential to salvation. And that's what Paul is telling Timothy. Focus on the issues, the doctrines that are essential to salvation. Now, I could summarize that, and you probably would want to expand that a little bit, but, but it says in Revelation that the, the church will be persecuted because they were preaching the testimony or they were testifying of Jesus Christ. They were those who were, were giving the testimony of Jesus Christ and keeping the commandments of God. At the very heart of our, our Christian life, at the very heart of the purpose of God, is the grace of God which comes through Jesus Christ. And secondly, is our obedience to God through the commandments of God. And of course, tied in with that are the holy days, with the Sabbath, etc. And most of, most of the laws, God's, the laws that God gives us are not just um, frivolous. He doesn't just impose things upon us for no reason. So there are laws that tie in with the Ten Commandments. But the basic, fundamental moral standards that you and I need to keep firmly in our mind and not digress from in the terms of debates, which sometimes happens, and speculation, which oftentimes happens. And what that does is often divide the church. I don't want to spend too much time on that because that's that's a message in itself. But Paul was dealing with the Ephesian church, and this is one of the things that he was, he was having to deal with. 
is that they were getting sidetracked by peripheral issues. Now, let's turn to Ephesians 6 because that's the focus of this message, this presentation. Turn with me to Ephesians 6. And how does this all tie in with peace, which is the focus of, of my message? Finally, my brethren, in verse 10, finally, my brethren, he's addressing the Ephesian church, the same church that he addressed in Acts 20, the same church that Timothy was involved with that we read about in 1 Timothy 1. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. We could stop there for just a minute. When we're dealing with peace, we have to understand, understand something that is essential to peace. And that's the fact that we believe in the, in the one true God and we believe in the sovereignty of God. If we believe that God is all-powerful and all-knowing and all-loving, a benevolent God, and we trust that he's in control of all things, then I'm assured, I have to be reminded of that from time to time because um, I don't think I'm easily... Um, put in a state of anxiety, but God has blessed me with not having to face circumstances like the Jensen's have. Now, I have no idea how I would deal with that. But the point is that when I have had times where I've sensed, have had a sense of anxiety, of restlessness, of, of, uh, of, um, of uncertainty in my own life, I've had to remind myself that there is a sovereign God and he's in charge of all things and that he knows what I'm going through. And if there's something that I need to go through, he will allow it. Or if there's something that I can do to avert that, then I ask him to inform me and to, to inspire me to understand what it is I need to do to avert that. But the point is that um, without the knowledge of God, without the certainty of his omnipotence and omniscience and all lovingness, I cannot have that confidence. I cannot have that peace. And then he goes on to say, put on the whole armor of God. Again, this is not my armor. This is the armor of God. This is the armor that, that God provides for us. That you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. One of the things that becomes readily apparent as you have been around for years is that overt actions on the part of the deceiver are easily... Uh, easily visualized by us. We, can, we, can, we know when we see it. And Satan doesn't work that way. He works subversively. He doesn't work overtly. He works in a way that, when he talks about the wiles of Satan, he talks about the cunningness. You could go back to the Garden of Eden and how uh, there's, there's the whisper. I remember the sermon, Roly, about the whisper. The one that, that speaks in a very subtle way to try to deceive and that's the, that's the one we're dealing with, the cunningness, who does things in a subtle way, who does things in an incremental way, little by little, just as the frog in the frying pan doesn't detect the changes in the temperature. We, if we're not alert to his subtleness, will become his victim. For it says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of the age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. There is a powerful opponent we have, and not one that we can see, 
And we cannot deal with him unless apart from the power and the Spirit of God. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth. The very first thing that, that he mentions here is truth, because truth guards against deception. And I was talking about how he works in subtle ways, half-truths, little nuances of change that, that will affect us in a way that we're not even aware of if we're not careful. But that's the foundation. That's the foundation of Paul starts with truth. I think he starts there with a very specific intention in mind. I don't think these, the, the armor that he talks about here as he goes through this is, is helter-skelter. It's, it's not, uh, it's not um, just a series of disjointed pieces of, of, of armor that he's talking about here. He's talking about putting the armor on in a way that one piece of armor is linked to the other in a symbolic sense and that there is significance in what Paul is saying here. Remember that Paul is here is talking from a prison and in all likelihood there is a guard there. There's a, there's a Roman soldier and Paul is thinking to himself look at this powerful Roman soldier with all of his armor on there ready for, for battle ready to do his duty. Isn't that the way we ought to be as Christians? And as he goes through this, of course, he's probably reflecting on that. I don't know that. I don't know if there was a guard there dressed that way. But I have some suspicion that there probably was. The next thing that Paul talks about, he says, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And one could go into all of the definitions of what righteousness is, but basically righteousness is expressing the very nature of God within ourselves through God's Holy Spirit. It is living the truth. We have the truth. We have the knowledge of the truth. That's wonderful. Knowledge is important. Knowledge is good. No, nothing in the Bible would tell us that knowledge is not a good thing. Knowledge is a very good thing. But knowledge that doesn't go beyond just the academic information that goes into our gray matter is of little value. What Paul is talking about here is righteousness. He's talking about taking that truth that God has revealed to us and putting it into practice, living it. It talks about, um, uh, Paul talks to the Colossian church, I believe, where he says that, uh, let the word of God, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. When the word of Christ dwells in us richly, we are wearing the breastplate of righteousness. And then he goes on to say, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. I had to think about that for a long time because he doesn't just tell us that we're to, to put on an, a piece of armor that is the greaves and the footwear that would hold us to the ground, hold us grounded and steady in our warfare, but he talks about the preparation of the gospel, not just about peace, not just about the gospel of peace, but about the preparation of the gospel of peace. You and I can't, in all honesty, and all have the moral, moral authority to talk to people about the gospel of peace unless we have the truth of God, unless the truth of God is 
something that is within us, that is applied in our lives, that we have, that, that we have internalized. And then, and only then, uh, are we prepared to present to those individuals that are needful of that the gospel of peace. Before we go there, though, I want to uh, address what is peace? What is peace? There are two words in the, uh, that are generally used. There are, there are many words, but there are two words. Shalom is the word that is used in, in the Hebrew. And shalom has uh, far-reaching ramifications. Uh, the word peace to us sometimes means the, um, the absence of conflict, or the absence of war. Um, we often see it that way because that's almost the best we can do, humanly speaking. But, but the word peace has an implication of being um, something that uh, deals with prosperity, has to do with, deal with health, has to do with relationship. It has far-reaching implications, this word shalom. And the, the uh, Greek word irene, I don't know if that's pronounced right. Those who are Greek scholars out there, please correct me. But has the same basic meaning. It has, it has a widespread um, all-encompassing meaning, this word peace, including this internal peace that uh, we would refer to as, as peace of mind. Turn with me to, um, I just want to make a quick connection between the righteousness that is the armor that we put, the breastplate of righteousness, and this next piece of armor that we put on. Turn with me to, to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. Caitlin was reading from Psalms, and she ended with a, this saying, Blessed be the peace of Israel, or something to that effect. I thought that's how appropriate that is. Psalm 119, verse 161, the longest book of the Bible. And David says, Princes, verse 161, Princes persecute me without cause. So Paul is telling us about his hardship, but my heart stands in awe of, the, of your word. I rejoice at your word. As one who finds great treasure, I hate and abhor lying, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you because of your righteousness, or your righteous judgments. Great peace have those who love your law, and nothing causes them to stumble. And nothing causes them to stumble. So there is a strong connection between righteousness, living the word of God, and peace, the peace that, but that uh, David is talking about here. Regardless of the circumstances that he was in, he was going to respond in a way that was going to be pleasing to, to his father. And as a result of that, he was going to have peace because the God of peace, of course, is the God of the universe. And he could count on God to restore him when he needed to be restored, to heal him if he needed to be healed, to defeat his enemies if those enemies needed to be defeated, whatever his circumstances were. Turn with me to uh, Isaiah 59. What are the things that, when, when, when we do not live a righteous life, when we do not live a life that's in harmony with the laws that govern human relations and a relationship with God. What, 
are the characteristics that we would exhibit. I'm going to turn to um, Isaiah 59. What are some of the characteristics? Opening it up to you. What are the things that you experience when, when you don't feel that your life is in order? Your relationship is with God is not right. Or with your fellow man, or with your employer, or with your spouse. That's a good conclusion, for sure. Conflict. Panic. Yeah, those are all words. Anxiety. Uncertainty. Gray hair. It has a physical consequence on us. Yes. You know, all of those things that we talk about, this, the, the, the things that happen inside of us are expressed in different ways. Sometimes they're expressed in terms of ulcers. There's a book called None of These Diseases. One of my favorite books. It talks about peace does not come in a pill. And he talks about how peace comes from obeying God, or being obedient to God, and having that relationship with God. One of the fundamental principles, as we'll go into that a little bit, fundamental principles of peace of mind is, is having that right relationship with God, who is the God of peace, after all. So if you want to avoid the anxiety, the uncertainty, I, I know in my own life that we all, you know, it's, this, this is, um, I like Roly because um, he, likes, he likes real people, right, Roly? And real people have problems in life. The, the person that sits up here or sits there perfectly groomed and, and pretends like he has no problems in his life or her life is not a real person. That's not the reality of the Christian life. It isn't the reality of my life, certainly. But when I am not right with God, then my whole life changes. I can't go to work with confidence. I, you know, in my profession as a chiropractor, um, I depend on God to give me the guidance, the direction, the compassion, the skill, and all the things that are involved with how I treat them every day. I pray for that every time I go to work. And if I'm not right with God, I don't have the confidence that God's going to give me that compassion or that skill or that wisdom because I feel disconnected. So we, feel, we, we, we move forward with uncertainty. And, of course, we have the option of changing that in our lives. But in Isaiah 59... In verse, well, we, we, let's begin in verse 1 because of what Ray said. Verse 1, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that he cannot save. He's always there and available. Nor is your heavy, that he cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from God. That's exactly what Ray was saying. And your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. Turn with me down to verse 8 for the sake of time. You could read through that chapter if you wanted to. But The way of peace they have not known. Because if, as you go through this, it talks all about the symptoms of sinning. 
of, our, of a mentality that's antagonistic with, a, with, a, with, a God's, with God's nature. And, and that's what this world is all about. When we see the wars and the, and the, and the, and the strife that takes place, we, we think in global terms, but it comes right down to personal relationships with each other and with God. It comes down to a, a one-on-one thing. Do you remember in the old days there used to be a song called, um, I think, I'm not sure if this is what the title was, but it, was, it says something like this. Um, let there be peace on earth and let it begin with me. That's the only way it can happen. You're not going to have peace between the Arabs and, and, and the Israelis unless individuals in that country start changing their lives. It, bec- it starts on an individual basis. It starts within relationships within, within the family. And then, it, and then it, it has an impact further and further that, are, that is widespread. But the problems of this world begin with individuals. And you don't want to just talk about the, the, the political headlines and, and make it uh, non-generic so that it isn't personal. It's personal. And, and we are a part of that process. It's important to us. Preparation of the gospel of peace. We want to share that wonderful thing that God has given us. But first of all, we have to experience it. And that comes through obedience to God. The way of peace they have not known, and there is no justice in their ways. They have made themselves crooked paths. Whoever takes that way shall not know peace. Just turn back a page, at least in my Bible, back a page, because he's talking about the potential for healing in verse 14 of Isaiah 57. He talks about how God wants to resolve the problem between him and Israel. Um, and as we read through this, Verse, verse 19, it says, I create the fruit of, his li- of the lips. Peace, peace to him who's far off. God wants to bring that person that's far off back to him. And of him who is near. And, say, and says, the, says the Lord, and I will heal him. But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters are cast up mire and dirt. And wedged between that is a chapter on fasting. I'm digressing away from my notes here, but, but, I, I, but this is where I'm going here right now. So between that is a chapter on fasting, and, and uh, God is telling Israel through the prophet Isaiah that the, the formality of going through the rituals of, of obedience, of... of, uh, of um, keeping the holy days and the Sabbath and, and doing all of these things, when the heart is wrong, when our actions are, are basically evil, God says he abhors that. And, they, and, and Israel is so... I can't use the word stupid, can I? Because that's not the word to use these days. Israel is so insensitive to the reality of what God wants from them, that they don't understand why he's not responding to their fast. And he says, is this not, verse, verse 6, is this not the fast that I've chosen? This is what God wants us to do, is to humble ourselves, to be contrite before him, and to do this, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, and that you may break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry? And that you bring your, your house to the, to the poor who are cast out. And when you see the naked, that you cover him. 
and not hide yourself from your own flesh? Then, does this not, in your mind, does, does Matthew 25 come to mind? When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was naked, you clothed me. That comes to mind when I'm reading this. And then, it says, then your light will break, shall break forth like the morning, and your healing shall, bring, shall spring forth speedily. And your righteousness shall go before you, and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. I see that as protection. I see that as, as joy and peace and a relationship with God. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. And you shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, that's that accusative finger, that judgmental mentality of others, and speak on speaking wickedness, if you extend your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, then your light shall dawn in the darkness, and your darkness shall be as the noonday, and the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought and strengthen your bones, and you shall be, the, be a watered garden, like a watered garden, and like a spring of water whose water does not, do, do not fail. Those from among you shall build the old waste places. He said, if this is the way you're going to be, this is how you're going to respond, then the end result of this is that you are going to be able to help others. You're going to be in a position to be able to cause people to come together. You're going to be the source, the mitigator of, uh, 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 and, and, and the means by which you can provide reconciliation. You shall build the old waste places and you shall raise up the foundation of many generations, and you shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of the, of the streets to dwell in. What God is saying here is that if our relationship with Him is right, now we have the opportunity, now we're prepared to preach the gospel of peace. But until that, in, that, that person that needs to be changed, needs to be molded into his image, until we become like him, uh, we will not be able to fulfill this responsibility that God wants us to fulfill. Turn with me to Galatians 5. Speaking of the Holy Spirit, Galatians 5. Here we go. I want to begin with uh, verse 16. Well, let's begin with verse 14, actually, because <clears throat> it's so important and foundational. And for, all, and for all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this. Looks like more than one word, but in one statement. <laughs> in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, but if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you consume, be consumed by one another. That pointing of the finger that, that we read about in Isaiah is not only going to consume the other individual that you're destroying by your gossip, by your malicious comments, be they true or otherwise, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to consume me too. It'll consume me as well. I say then, walk in the Spirit, 
Well, I say then, walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. Paul is talking again here, just as he was in Ephesians, is that there's a war going on. And where that war is going on is within us. And until that, that battle is... is uh, there are many battles. We win some, we lose some, but the... And, and we, we need to be aware of that, that um, we're not going to win all the battles against the lust of the flesh. Because, because we're not always going to be strong in the armor of God either. But it says that if, if we allow the power of the Spirit to work within us, it will counteract the passions that will sometimes draw us away from God. And these are contrary to one another. So that you do not do the things that you do wish to do. So sometimes we don't even want to do the things that we do, as Paul said in Romans. The things I want to do, I don't do. Things that I don't want to do, I do. And says, spare me, God, from all of this. And he says, thank God for Jesus Christ. The means by which I have the ability, because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But then it goes on to say, But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law, that is, under the penalty of the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are, goes through all the list, adultery, fornication, uncleanliness, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousy, outbursts of wrath, that's conflict, selfish ambition, that's, that's covetousness, always wanting, to, always wanting more, never being happy with what you have, dissensions, division, heresies, false teachings, these peripheral issues that lead us away from the, from the Word of God, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, because there are more, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in times past, that those who practice such things will not enter the, inherit the kingdom of God. So what Paul is saying here is, wait a minute, when I go through this, we're not talking about frivolous things here. We're talking about things that will keep you out of the kingdom of God. These are, these are eternal, eternal, eternally important things. When, when Christ was asked, what shall I do to enter the kingdom? He said, keep the commandments. And of course, all of these um, works of the flesh are contrary to the law. And then he goes on to say, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. And as Murray has often pointed out in his messages, Love is the fruit of the Spirit. And the various facets of love are expressed in these characteristics. Joy, peace, long-suffering. Peace is what we've focused on. Long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Meekness, it says there. Meekness, gentleness. Do you know what? Uh, humility is so foundational to having peace of mind because one of the things that somebody that's arrogant um, you know we live in a society where uh, everybody feels that something is owed to them um, and in some ways we live in a society that's so materialistic that always wants more they, and they, if they see somebody that has more than they have, they're envious of them. They want more than they have, or they want what they have. That's a, that's a mentality of, of arrogance. That's a mentality of, because it's all about the self. When it's about the self, whenever it's selfish, there's an element of pride that's there. Why do you want those things? Because 
you look good. You look good. There's nothing wrong with having a nice car and a nice home and, 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 and having... God doesn't condemn affluence, but he condemns this, this uh, obsessive mentality of always wanting more or always wanting what somebody else has. That's not in that attitude of humility. Peace of mind comes with the right attitude. It's a, the battle that's fought up here, the, the mind and the heart. It's not, once that's lost, then, then the battle is lost. Turn with me to, uh, uh, I want to turn to the scripture in, in Matthew. Matthew 11, please. Matthew 11. How often have we read this scripture? And it's so relevant to what I'm trying to convey here today. Something that I need to be reminded of, I suppose all of us need to be reminded of often. Verse 28. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Whatever it is in your life, whatever it is in my life. And he says, I will give you rest. But there is, but it's not automatic. Christ doesn't just stop there. He says, take my yoke upon you, upon you and learn. He's giving you the formula here. He's giving me the formula here to, to have peace within ourselves, within a society that has no peace, regardless of the circumstances. He says, for, for, for I am gentle, that is, I am meek and lowly of heart, humble, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you want rest for your souls, that's basically a way of saying, if you want peace of mind, then what you need to do is follow me. I'll be with you there. I'll, I'll, I'll be with you. I'll be, uh, we'll, we'll you know, put the yoke on and I'm going to be there. The, the, the uh, symbolism, of course, is the, the yoke with two oxen moving together. And, uh, and, of course, Jesus Christ would be the one who would be taking the, the lion's share of the load. And he says, but if you follow me, follow my example of gentleness and meekness, of hum humility, you'll have rest for your souls, and I'll have rest for my soul. Undoubtedly, that'll be the case. Turn with me to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4. Again, we're focusing on the state of mind that's required in order for us to have peace of mind. Ephesians 4. Same church. Paul is wanting them to have a church that functions, is not dysfunctional. Because all of us in some ways have come from dysfunctional backgrounds. I, I know that uh, we heard a seminar down in, in uh, Lexington and um, actually speaking in Toronto today, um, Mike James said he comes from a, from a Leave it to Beaver background. So 
there are exceptions to the rule. Some have come from such a perfect background, uh, you know, absolute perfect parents, siblings, and uh, just like Leave It to Beaver. Some of you young people won't know who Leave It to Beaver. That's back a few eras, so you can ask your mom and dad. They might remember. <laughs> um, but most of us come from a background where, where that was not so. And we bring that into the church. And that's why we have churches that are dysfunctional. And, and the Ephesian church, in some ways, as was the Corinthian church, as were some of the other churches, were dysfunctional. And Paul is telling them, this is how you need to function if you want to have a church that is going to be not only functional, but is going to thrive. Ephesians. I'm at Galatians here. Ephesians 4. To go through this whole beautiful chapter on, on how the church ought to function. But it says, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, again, uh, alluding to the fact that he was also a prisoner of the Roman uh, justice system, beseech you to have a walk worthy of your calling. Well, wait a minute. Let's stop there for a minute. What is a walk worthy of your calling? Paul says he's urging us to have a walk worthy of our calling. And then he goes on to say and explain for which you were called with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring, that is striving, striving to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So often Paul addresses this very same issue over and over and over again and foundational to that unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, the peace between one another. I'll just, I'll just digress just a little bit here because um, I talked a little bit about that relationship between ourselves and our Father. And that involves... Um, it's, it's, really, it's, it's, it's extensive, right? It's our prayer life. It's our, it's our, our reading of His Scripture. It's our um, willingness to yield to Him. It's our contriteness. But then there's this relationship with each other. Because how can you have peace of mind unless you have a right relationship with one another? It's impossible, really. It's, it, it, and let's, I shouldn't say that. It's, it's possible because in spite of those relationships, if your relationship is right with God, He can still give you peace of mind. But that's not the way God intended it. God intends for us to have peace with one another as well, as much as is possible to live peaceably with all men. How do we have that peace? Because we're always going to offend each other from time to time. It's inevitable, right? We're going to offend each other. I'm, I'm sure I've said things that have offended people. Maybe somebody in this room. I've offended. And it says, Scripture tells us, uh, I'm not going to go to the Scriptures, I'll let you dig them out, but Scripture tells us if we go to the altar, and that's in Matthew 5, I believe, if we go to the altar and we remember that somebody has something against us, then we're supposed to go to them. There's two situations. There's, there's the offended party who is looking for somebody to apologize and there's the offending part uh, the uh, yeah the offending party who needs to apologize and the offended party who's looking for an apology there's two parties and god says whatever party you are which one if you're the offending party you have a responsibility you need to go to that person and you need to talk to them and you need to resolve that issue and then once you've done your very best 
because the conclusion isn't always the way we want it to be. We can try hard to resolve it. That's our responsibility. The other person has a responsibility too. They can forgive you. And that's, that's wonderful. That doesn't always work that way. But if I'm offended by somebody, I need to go to them. That's what it says to me. Matthew 18 says, in each, each situation, if I'm offended, I'm to go to my brother. We're supposed to work things out together. And then there's a cascading events. If that doesn't work out, two or three brothers, sisters go together. And then you try to deal with it. And eventually you bring it to the church. But you try to resolve it. It's, it's, it's an atmosphere of wanting and desiring reconciliation. It's a process where it's, love is involved. It's not meant to be punitive. It's not meant to be um, a means of just p- uh, s- putting somebody, as- brushing somebody aside. It's meant to bring people together. The same t- is true of if, if, somebody, um, if you've offended somebody and you recognize that. You're to go to them and you're to repent. You're to say, I'm sorry. How does that bring peace? Well, when you're forgiven by God, when you're forgiven by God, what happens? What should happen is that all of a sudden you have this weight off your shoulders. It's the weight called guilt. And now you don't have to deal with that. You're free. If you really, and that's something that's sometimes hard to accept because we keep going back and sometimes we batter ourselves. But when we've gone to God and we've asked for forgiveness and we accept that forgiveness and he not only forgives us, but he forgets that sin, we're free of that sin. Our conscience is free of guilt. That's peace of mind. You can't have peace of mind with guilt. That's another one of those qualities when things aren't right in your life, guilt is there. Anxiety, conflict, but guilt is another thing. And God says you're free of that guilt. But he also says to us that I've freed you from that guilt. It cost my son his life for that. And now what do I expect from you? I expect you to be willing to forgive others. In fact... It's a prerequisite. My forgiveness will not be poured out on you unless you have a willingness to forgive your brother or sister. That's, that's a promise. He says, unless we forgive, we'll, we won't be forgiven. It's as simple as that. And so when we get together and we have these conflicts, God is saying there's a great incentive for us to resolve those issues. Now, all we can do is try, but it's important for us to try. And it's important for us not to be flippant about it, to say, well, I made a you know, symbolic gesture. It's a heartfelt desire to want to be reconciled. And that involves a tremendous amount of humility. To say I'm sorry involves humility. To say thank you is an appreciation for something that also involves humility. So, so our relationship to God and our relationship to one another are contingent on us having peace of mind and understanding the source of peace is the God of peace after all turn with me to Philippians 4 please Philippians 4 in verses 6 to 9 one of the churches that didn't seem to have a whole lot of problems seemed to be generally pretty happy is that true, Adrian? The Philippians seem to be a pretty good church. They didn't have too many troubles. Anyway, um, in Philippians 4, let's begin with verse 5. 
Let your gentleness, again, this is this word is meekness, a sense of humility, um, contriteness, be known, to, uh, be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. You see, when you're thankful for what you have, Paul said, whether he abounded or whether he was abased, he says, he could find contentment. Because he understood that the things that really counted in life, he had. And the things that people were generally striving for had little value. He said he gave up everything for Jesus Christ, for his calling. And he said that was rubbish in comparison to what he received. It was rubbish. And, and he's saying here that we need to be thankful and thankful for all the things that we received. Let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts, will protect your hearts. That's what we're talking about, this uh, Ephesians uh, 6 armor of God. It's talking about being protected. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. A peace that passes all understanding. Why, is it, why does it surpass all understanding? Because humanly speaking, the Jansons cannot have peace of mind. It's, it would be, humanly speaking, impossible. I don't know how they could have. But with God's spirit in them, and when they bring it to God in prayer and thanksgiving for what they have, the little blessings, they're thankful that, her, that uh, Bailey's stomach doesn't have to be removed. That's a, that's a blessing. In spite of all the things that were negative, they can be thankful for that. And then it goes on to say, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble... Whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, is there any, is there any virtue, if there's any virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Focus on the things that are positive and that you can be thankful for. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these things do, and the God of peace will be with you. I'll just give you a reference so you can read through that because it's a beautiful summary, basically, in Colossians 3 and verses 12 to 15. But for the sake of time, let's conclude with uh, Romans 10 and verse 15. Romans 10 and verse 15. Now, and how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written... How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good, of good things. And that's a quote from Isaiah. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace. In order to preach the gospel of peace, you have to be prepared to preach the gospel of peace. And that's what arms us. One of the things that I've discovered... Um, what is the serenity? Oh, yeah, I, have, I actually have it down here. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. God's always involved in the process of peace of mind and serenity. And some things you just have to leave in his hands. And other things, God expects you to make the changes that you can make. 
And of course it requires wisdom to know the difference. When we are to preach the gospel of peace, we're to be prepared to do that. The whole, the whole Christian walk is one of, of a healing process because all of us are the walking wounded. And part of the healing process, and I, I've never been to an AA meeting, but I can relate to the steps that are there. And first of all, acknowledging that there is a supreme God that you have to rely on of ourselves. We will never succeed in overcoming the issues in our own lives as Christians. We will not. But the other, the other aspect of this is that, at the very, I think it's the very last one, is that the twelfth um, step, is that you're to reach out to others. You're to reach out to others. And I, and I was, I quoted, uh, I didn't quote, but I was, I mentioned um, this. I don't watch this show, by the way, in case, um, in case you wonder. But there's a program called Friends. Probably you've heard of the word, the program Friends. It's probably a long time over now. I don't, I don't know if it's even aired anymore. But one of the actors, one of the main actors in Friends, um, as is the case for many of the people in the entertainment industry and, uh, and high-profile individuals and, and athletics, etc., end up losing sight of what life is all about. They end up in drugs. They end up in, in, in sexual immorality. They end up in alcohol. And this particular individual was, uh, went through the process of Alcoholics Anonymous, and he converted his big mansion into a place where uh, some of the individuals who, who were going through those steps could stay, a place of refuge. He found healing himself and helping others. And the preparation of the gospel of peace is, is essential for us, not just that we would have peace, as important as that is and how wonderful it is for us to privilege for us to be able to have that. What a gift, what a blessing it is to have that. But God doesn't expect us to stop there. He wants us to step out and reach out to others. A gospel of peace is a message to reach out to others so that they can experience it too. But in the process of doing that, we're actually helping ourselves too because it becomes healing for us. As we help others to heal, we also. Because we're in this together. We're in this together. And we're on a road to recovery. And God is apt to bless us if we apply these principles. So the preparation of the gospel of peace as part of the armor of God um, is essential for us, as are the others, which are all founded on the truth of God, the word of God, the, the living word of God that dwells in us through his Holy Spirit. And as we approach, the, uh, as we approach Pentecost, um, we can reflect on the blessings that God has given us, particularly the blessing of peace of mind, which none of us can really have unless God provides it for us because he is, after all, the God of peace. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.com. Thank you.